Well, good morning. Great to have you here today. Um, my name's Glenn, one of the pastors here, and we're glad uh, for the opportunity to, to be here. You all look a little more bright-eyed. Is that the case? You know, happy Time Change Sunday, right? But we all know what happens on Time Change Sunday. We think, oh, man, I got an extra hour of sleep. And then we stay up the extra hour instead of going to bed, right? So we're not maybe as, as they say, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed as we, <laughs> as we may be. But yeah, Time Change Sunday. Uh, last Sunday was Halloween. And uh, that was an interesting thing. Somebody said to me this morning, ah, you don't have a tie on today. It must have been your costume last week. <laughs> um, well, anyway, yeah. But as we looked at last week, Halloween, we looked at the resurrection message. So we studied an Easter story, right? The Easter story, not an Easter story, the Easter story. And talked about the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. And uh, today we continue our study of 1 Corinthians 15 uh, as we rediscover the resurrection. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. And uh, we're going to drop in on Paul's instruction to the Corinthian church about the resurrection of the dead. Now, that sounds a little more like a Halloween kind of a thing, right? Uh, as you think about that, the resurrection of the dead, and you may be thinking, what in the world, the resurrection of the dead, what are we talking about today? Well, as we look at the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 34, would you open your Bibles to that passage, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you don't have a Bible and uh, would like to hold one underneath the chair in front of you, should be a Bible in that Bible, page 801. Of course, in your tablets, phones, or your copy of the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to start at verse 12. And Paul is once again correcting some, as we'll see, some in the church who have a misunderstanding about the resurrection of the dead. And you say, well, who are we talking about? Well, we'll get to that as we move through the text. But verse 12 just follow along with me, please, as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, what are we talking about here? Well, the problem. Like the Sadducees, if you remember that name, you say, I don't know who they are. Well, do you remember back as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, the first four books at the beginning of the New Testament? You know the Pharisees, right? We hear about them a lot. We, well, the Sadducees were also one of those groups. And the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so, like them, as we get into Corinth and the area of Greece close there, the Greeks scoffed. They mocked the gospel because they did not believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. And their philosophers considered the body a prison and viewed 
death as a way out of that prison. One of the Greek proverbs said, the body is a tomb. And they believe that uh, that um, immaterial, the immaterial soul, that part of us that you can't see or touch, the immaterial soul is immortal, but not the body. And so the resurrection of the body was certainly a far cry from what they would actually promote or hold on to. And that was the Greek culture in which the church at Corinth existed. No wonder, as we see here, some of the Corinthian believers were also saying, there is no resurrection of the dead. And uh, in fact, look at the response uh, in Acts chapter 17 and starting at verse 18. Acts chapter 17 and starting at verse 18. Now Paul was preaching in Athens and obviously to the Greeks. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 18 we read this. um, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, all right, Greek philosophers began to debate with him, Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. We move on. And we go down to verse 32. And after Paul had preached, in fact, that's a great text. The rest of chapter uh, 17 here, we get to the end, verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Now, that was the reaction of the Greek philosophers to Paul's message about Jesus Christ, about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, about the resurrection of the dead. Last week we preached about the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. He came out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning. He rose from the dead. He died on the cross. He died for our sin. We saw that last week in verses 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus died in our place for our sins. He was buried and he rose again proving he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior, the deliverer of sin like he claimed to be. And then today, as we look at this, we're not talking about, we are talking about the resurrection of Christ, but we're talking about the resurrection of the dead. You say, who's that? That's believers who die. That could be you and me one day. That's those who know Jesus Christ, who die and are put into the grave. The resurrection of the dead. It's talking about you and I. We know that the Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. And unless Jesus comes before our lives on this earth end, we will all die. (laughs) I mean, we can learn as much as we want about medicine and health and all the rest of that stuff. But one day, if Jesus doesn't come back until, we will die. But we will rise again. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. It's not some TV show or movie. 
all right? It's biblical truth for you and I, and folks, that's where we get our hope. That's where we get our hope. And that's what Paul is talking about. And as he uh, explains to the church, you see, the problem was there was some misunderstanding. Now, understand, the Corinthians did understand. They did believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That wasn't a problem. I don't know if you've ever read through 1 Corinthians 15 and wondered, what's, why don't they believe in the resurrection of Christ? That's not what Paul's point is. They do. That's what he's talking about here in verses 12 and 13. They do believe in the resurrection. And so what Paul is doing, he's taking that foundational truth of all that we believe to be true about our relationship with God. And he's teaching from there, he's building on there that there is a resurrection of the dead for those who know Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, man, hallelujah. Every once in a while, I have to do a funeral of somebody who did not know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's hard, folks. It's just hard. Because the reality is, that individual that we're talking about without Jesus Christ is in hell. And that's not a message that any loved ones or friends or family want to sit in here. And yet, for those who know Jesus Christ when we do a funeral, though we grieve, Paul says, we don't grieve like those who don't have hope, who don't know Jesus. Oh, there's still grief, and that's okay, because we miss people. But we don't grieve like people who don't know Jesus, because we know that one day we will see them again. And we also know that that loved one, that friend, that family member of ours who has died is in a far better place today than you and I. And think about it. We would never, once they get a taste of being in heaven with Jesus, <laughs> they would never want to be back here, right? And really, as much as we miss them, we would never want them back. This is what Paul is talking about. The resurrection. We would say life after death. Everything about biblical Christianity rises or falls on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. We have no resurrection. We have nothing. We, we wouldn't be here today. And we're going to see that because as one writer put it, he, he, as, as we studied through this, it was like seven horrible consequences. Seven horrible consequences if Christ had not been risen from the dead. That's what we see in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised. And Paul goes on to list seven horrible consequences. So we're just going to move quickly down through the text. There's really nothing difficult about what Paul's saying. The first one in verse 14 if Christ hasn't risen from the dead or has not been raised, our preaching is useless. That your translation may say in vain. The idea is our preaching is empty. There's no point. What in the world? There's no value. There's no purpose. Folks, you're wasting your time here this morning listening to what I have to say if Jesus hasn't been from the dead because what I'm preaching to you is meaningless. It's vain, right? He goes on. 
He says also, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Whoa. Listen, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, your faith that you put in Jesus Christ means nothing. It is also vain. Same word that's used. Of no value. You have, there's no purpose for your faith. It doesn't matter what you believe about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about the cross. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, none of that would mean squat. That's a New English word I discovered, right? He goes on, verse 15. More than that. We are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him, in fact, if the dead are not raised. Paul's saying this, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're liars. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and he repeats it again, then we will not rise from the dead. The dead will not be raised. That's us. If Jesus didn't rise, neither will we. And he's saying, if Jesus didn't rise, then we're liars. We're misrepresenting this whole business of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing else matters. We have no integrity. We are misrepresenting Jesus Christ. We're false witnesses. What we have to say couldn't stand up in court. If the dead are not raised, and that's us. Number four, verse 17, he goes on and says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Your faith is worthless. Some would say in vain. It's a different word than back in verse 14. That's why it may be translated for you futile, but the word is worthless. It is of no use. There is no power in our faith. Right? We understand the power of faith in God But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't mean anything. Our faith is lacking truth, lacking significance, completely unprofitable, a waste of time. And the end of verse 17, and now we're getting a little bit more difficult. He says, you are still in your sins. Whoa. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ... The fact that he went to the cross, gave his life, shed his blood, died in our place for our sins, was buried. And if he didn't rise again, we are still in our sin. And that sin, we're told in scripture, will condemn us to hell forever. Eternal separation from God. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. If you want to look at that with me. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. Paul says this as he's talking about the gospel. He says, uh, Romans 4.25, I'll get there. He was delivered, speaking about Jesus Christ. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's one of those big theological words, but it's not a hard word. The word means justification. We've been justified when we got saved. It means that because of the blood of Christ, his work on the cross, when we believe, Jesus declares us righteous. He declares that we are now right before him, without which we're sinners bound to hell. But because Jesus rose from the dead for our 
justification. That's what he says. We are no longer, if we believe, living in our sin. Paul said in chapter 3, in verse 23 of the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not one of us here today who, has, who, who isn't a sinner, right? Doesn't take us long to figure that out. Nobody really will deny that we're sinners. The problem comes we think we can do things that are good enough on our own, but that's why we read then in six, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Romans chapter 3, we're all sinners, and we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin, what we've earned as a result of our sin, what we deserve because of our sin is death. That death is the hell thing that we talked about. The thing that we sometimes, it's a word that we don't like to use when we're talking to people who don't know Jesus. It's just not politically correct. To tell people that they will spend eternity without God in hell, that's just, wow, that sounds so harsh and unloving. But because of our sin, God had no other choice. That's why he sent Jesus. And that's verse 23 of Romans 6. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Huh? Huh? Yeah, folks. Man, that's an amazing truth. But if Christ has not been raised, there is no gift, and we stand condemned and guilty before God. Number six, verse 18. We read this. Paul says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. I talked to you earlier about the funeral of those who know Jesus Christ. Praise God, we can stand and talk about those who have died and are in heaven. But Paul says, if Christ is not raised, believers who have died, who have fallen asleep, are lost. They've perished. Life is over. It's done. They're gone, never to be seen again. They have no help. They have no advocate who's going to plead their case before God because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters. And people who have fallen asleep, believers who have fallen asleep, that's, that's a great term for death for a believer, isn't it? And you know why that term? Because when somebody goes to sleep, they usually wake up. Right? The implication when Paul says, A believer, death has fallen asleep, means that we will one day wake up. Where is that going to be? When life on this earth is over, we will wake up in heaven. That's the sleep. Sleep is an amazing thing, right? Sure, it's that one you got an extra hour last night, right, everybody? Yeah, we already talked about that. So, well, but, but that's it. Believers who have died, they've fallen asleep, are lost. They're gone forever, never to be seen. It's over, that's it. Verse 19. Paul says this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Number seven, we have no hope. We have no hope. Horrible consequence. No hope. 
As you look around, you know this. We live in a culture, in a world today that lacks hope, desperately needs hope. And on, the only hope that we have to give is Jesus. Because Jesus provides the hope, the risen Jesus. The Jesus who died for our sins on the cross, was buried, and rose again is the hope that provides the forgiveness of sin and eternal life with God in heaven forever. If only for this life we have hope. We as believers live this life. Say We say we believe in Jesus and it makes life different. We've got hope. Death is not a problem. A couple weeks ago I was at a... I went to the Billy Graham Law Enforcement Chaplain Training. Um, had a great week. Met a 31-year-old former policeman who last February was shot in... Uh, trying to arrest the bad guy, right through the carotid artery. Seventy units of blood were required to do what they needed to do to get the bleeding stopped and all the rest of it. As we talked about this, see, I, I went to lunch, I had no idea. <laughs> and he's telling me this. He knows the Lord. He's, that's why they were there. He wants to be a chaplain. He wants to be able to tell especially police officers about Jesus Christ. But he thought he was going to die as he lay in the parking lot after having been shot. He said to me, you know what, Glenn? I wasn't afraid to die. I felt no fear whatsoever. You know why? Because he knew Jesus. Because he knew his sin had been forgiven. Because he had hope that if this life on earth ended, he would wake up in heaven in the presence of God. Wow. That's our hope, folks. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, we've got no hope. We're, we're just, we're most to be pitied. That word means to be deserving of sympathy for one's pathetic, miserable condition. And that's what it would be. No mercy. Came across this statement. Said this. We have renounced. We who know Jesus Christ today. Right. We have renounced this world for the world to come. We know there's a better life ahead. One day it's not here. It's in heaven. We have renounced this world for the world to come. Only to discover in the end that there is no world to come. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Now, think about that. We've renounced this world for the world to come, but we, find, we discover in the end that there is no world to come. That would make life pretty pathetic. You'd get to the end and say, man, I wasted my time. Man, I gave, I gave God a lot of money that I could have kept for myself. I could have enjoyed life more on this earth. But that's what Paul says. If only in this life we have hope, we are most to be pitied. We have none. And that's how bad it would be. But, verse 20, Christ has been raised. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. Paul talks about first fruits. What are we talking about? Well, the fruit-bearing season is basically over here in northeastern Pennsylvania, right? We had a couple of big, heavy, thick frosts. A week ago, yesterday, our marigolds, big, those big, bright, yellow, I don't know, what do they call puffball, big, big, not the little, the big, I mean, they were bright and, and, and blooming and Wow, Jane looked at it and says, man, we're not ready to rip them out yet, right? Well, was it Tuesday or Wednesday? Whew, boy, the frost descended, and that's it. They're done. They're gone. Friday afternoon, whoosh, they're in the trash can. because that's what, But the first fruits, we're not talking about that. What, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What are we talking about? Paul's mention of first fruits here are a guarantee that believers who have died... Believers who have died, who have fallen asleep, just like Jesus Christ, will also rise from the dead. The first fruits, if you go back and study Leviticus chapter 23, you could check that out and read through what the Lord told the nation of Israel about first fruits. They had a, a, an offering that they gave to God. The first fruits were the season's first harvested crop. And what the Israelites would do were to bring an offering of that crop to God. And it represented what God had done. It was an indication that the full harvest was yet to come. It was still to come. It was an offering of God exhibiting trust that they believed. Trust and thanksgiving that they knew God had provided. They were giving the first fruits of that harvest offering. And they knew there was more to come. That's why I was always taught and would teach here as well. Scripture, I believe, says, you know what? When we give to God, you give first. Boy, that sometimes is hard, isn't it? But I remember years ago after we were first married, and sometimes there wasn't a lot of numbers left at the end of the check bill paying, right? It was like, when do you give your offering to God? And, and I remember it was always you pay God first, and what's left goes to everything else. You may say, you got to be kidding me. That's not. No, that's biblical. Started in the Old Testament. That's what the first fruits is all about. It was an offering of thanksgiving to God. Believing that God would bring in a full harvest when they gave at the beginning the first fruits of that harvest. And Paul is saying, Jesus Christ is the first fruits the first one to rise from the dead. After that, in turn, you and I who know Jesus Christ will also, it's a guarantee because Jesus is the first fruits. The end of chapter 16, and we'll get there, I'm not sure when, but we'll get there. End of chapter 16, verse 15, 1 Corinthians. Paul said this, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. That's the word first fruit. Same word as here. The first converts. In other words, it was like, you know what? God started a church there in Corinth. And, and Paul knew that Stephanus, the first one saved, was first fruits that there were going to be more to come to Christ. Huh? If that doesn't fire up your desire to reach people for Christ and to share the gospel, this church started the same way. The first fruits of those who came to know Jesus Christ was, you know, because of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. We know the first fruits, there were going to be more that would rise to newness of life on this earth. And then when we die, 
resurrected from the dead. Paul said in chapter 8, verse 23, the book of Romans, Romans 8, 23, he says, not only so, but we ourselves read Romans chapter 8. You'll get the context, but it's an amazing context there, but you get, wow. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Folks, we talked last week about our salvation. We are saved. That happened at a moment in time in the past. We trusted Christ. We are saved positionally. We're changed from an enemy to a child of God. We are being saved. We continue to become more like Jesus. Our salvation continues to change us and grow us. And ultimately, we will be saved. When we see Jesus, when our lives, that we will ultimately become, be saved. And Paul is saying we eagerly await for our sonship, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, the fulfillment of the first fruits principle that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, when we die, we will one day be with God in heaven. I, I tell you, we wait eagerly. Are you? Sometimes I think heaven is just a fire escape from hell. We talk about it. Yeah, I know I'm going to heaven if I die. Paul says we wait eagerly. And he goes on in the rest of these verses uh, down through verse 28. And he talks about how the end will come. He talks about what will happen and, and when those first fruits. And he talks about when Jesus comes and we believe that's the rapture. And then he moves through and he talks about how that Jesus will conquer his enemies. And I believe in here and we'll get to it next week when we get to the end of the chapter. But the, what will happen there is at the end of the millennium, there's a thousand year reign of Christ and Jesus will conquer those enemies and ultimately there will be a rebellion at the end and, and he will destroy them and then we go into eternity to the new heavens and the new earth and, and it's like here it is, the first fruits which guarantees that we will live again because Jesus Christ lives again. God will destroy Christ's enemies and the last enemy, Paul says, is death. No more death, no more dying in eternity. That'll be it in heaven forever. But if the dead are not raised, Paul goes back, verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, if the dead are not raised at all, look at verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no, no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? We talked about if Christ isn't raised, we said, but then Christ has been raised. And now we look at this, if the dead are not raised. That's you and I as believers who die, who fall asleep. If, if they don't wake up, if we don't come back to life after death. So he ends this section with these verses. Two final arguments. Verse, as you look at it, verse 29. He says, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do, do who are baptized for the dead? You say, baptized for the dead? What in the world is that? And that's a great question. 
I got to tell you, there are all kinds of ideas. Nobody really knows what that means. We have no indication of any kind of practice like that that we know in the early church. It's not mentioned again elsewhere in the Bible. So when we look at that, there are those who, who may say, and I, uh, as, as I studied through, I think probably one that holds more weight with me would be that those who are baptized on behalf of the dead to take the place of those who have died would be the indication. In other words, the idea that we reach people with Christ, we share the gospel, people get saved, and they then because they get saved, they know Jesus Christ, they want to make a public declaration by getting baptized. So they, getting bapti- they get baptized, which is they're taking the place of those who have died. Now, I, that's the best I can do for you because nobody else really does much better. But what I can tell you, more so, is I know exactly what it does not mean. Those who are baptized for the dead does not mean that a a believer can be baptized on behalf of a dead unbeliever and that baptism changes that dead unbeliever's status before God to a dead believer. That does not happen, and that's not what that means. And I say, you say, well, how do you know that? Because I know what the rest of the Bible teaches. We know, as we said last week, that uh, as we look at this whole business, the Bible clearly teaches salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. Not by bat- being baptized for a person who died without Jesus Christ. That's just not found in Scripture, and and it's not what that means. Paul neither approves nor condemns whatever it is to be baptized for the dead on behalf of the dead. But the point is that it is pointless to do that if the dead are not raised from the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, of believers who fall asleep, if that doesn't happen, being baptized for the dead, whatever that means, and Paul doesn't criticize it, he doesn't condemn it, he doesn't really give his approval, but he says, hey, if they're doing that, but there's no resurrection from the dead, the dead are not raised, then what's the point? He's just making an argument, again, to to prove that the dead must be raised because Jesus was. And then number two, he says, he goes on, And as I read in verse 32, he says, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, it doesn't make sense to endanger our lives every hour, Paul says, or every day. And that's what Paul was doing, standing for his faith. When he talks about the wild beasts in Ephesus, he's not talking about going to the, we we think of, our, our movie culture, right? And we think that Paul must have been in the Colosseum fighting the wild beasts uh, that we, we see portrayed on television and in the movies. And No, that's not what it was because we know, first of all, that Paul is a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were not put in the Colosseum to have to fight wild beasts. I believe it's a metaphor that indicates, and Paul uses these throughout the New Testament in his letters, a metaphor that indicates battling, suffering, physical danger at the hands of people who don't know Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was talking about. Persecution. Every hour. 
all the time, every day. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. Got on my radar screen too late this week, but folks, it fits right here. Why in the world would believers around the world stand for their faith when they know they could be killed tonight for no other reason than they know Jesus Christ as Savior? Why? Because they have hope. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Because the promise of eternal life and salvation and life after death, because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we also will rise. And because we stand for what we believe, and if that means death, if that means persecution, Jesus himself said, hey, they persecuted me, they will you too. And we endure for the glory of God. But if that's not true, Hey, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's a great perspective on life. But without a resurrected Jesus, that's all we have. You know, when I've read that, I've always thought that that had to do, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So we're talking about a bunch of gluttons and drunkards. Hmm, no, not necessarily. That certainly could be part of it. But it's, I think, more, it's, it's a representation of the good life. We might say here in the United States of America, it's a representation of the American life. Man, if there's no life after death, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and we're still in our sin, we may as well live it up here, enjoy everything there is to enjoy. Live the good life. Live a life that is totally not focused on Jesus Christ because he doesn't matter, right? If he didn't rise from the dead, it doesn't matter. Have the best of what you want. Enjoy the fine music and the fine dining and the fine cars and the fine homes and the fine vacations and all the rest because that's all that matters. And yet, folks, I was thinking about that and, and reading through and studying and I thought, you know what? We in the church are caught up in doing that anyway. Believers all across this country are pursuing the good life at a whole lot greater degree than we want to admit. We want life to be comfortable. Why do you think the whole COVID stuff has been such a pain in the neck? Because it's influenced, it's impacted the good life for us. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. We don't like that. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. But folks, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, we have a whole lot more to talk about and live for. And it's that one day we will be with Jesus in heaven forever. You see, verses 33 and 34, but the dead are raised. We just said, well, if the dead are not raised, but the dead are raised. Jesus rose from the dead, and we will too one day if we die before Jesus comes again. The dead are raised. Look at, he says, verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. 
Don't be misled, Paul's saying, because there is life after death. We will see Jesus. We will be given new bodies, resurrected bodies. Don't be misled. Don't spend time with the wrong people. That's what he's saying. You spend time with the wrong people, you're going to pick up the wrong truth, or it's going to be false truth. It's, I don't know, false truth. False teaching, all right? It would be a good new political word, false truth, right? But don't be misled. Then he goes, he, he goes on, come back to your senses as you ought. Some translations, wake up from your drunken stupor. Get sober. He says, you're not thinking. You're acting like you're drunk. Wake up. There is a resurrection from the dead. Then he says, stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Stop sinning. Don't be ignorant of God. Stop tolerating wrong teaching. And in many cases, the immoral behavior that comes with the wrong teaching. Sometimes the wrong teaching we feel justifies immorality, and that's what happens. That's what was happening here. That's why the Corinthian believers, we've already been there. Go back to chapter 5, 6, and 7. You'll see it. They thought he's in his believers, oh, we can still enjoy everything. No, stop sinning. That's not truth. Don't tolerate wrong teaching. The truth of the matter is Jesus rose from the dead, and so will we, and we have hope and a promise of eternal life in heaven with God forever. And, and as I put this together, I, I, here's my concluding statement. The resurrection of believers... Life after death with our God in heaven. That's what we're talking about. The raising of the dead. Life after death with God in heaven should motivate us to get serious now. Now. You see, Paul is making his point here about the resurrection from the dead because the, it, it ought to affect the way we live now. Because if it doesn't affect the way we live now, we've missed the point. First John, chapter 2. First John, chapter 2. Back near the end of your New Testament. John himself said in verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him. That's Jesus so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. He's saying this, Jesus is coming again. Remain in him. Stay close to God. Walk with him on this earth in this life. Why? So that when Jesus comes, we won't be unashamed before him. We'll be ready. Have you ever felt like, man, I sure hope Jesus doesn't come today because I'm just not quite ready. My life isn't, I got some things I got to get squared away before Jesus comes again. And if he came right now, I think I'd be a little embarrassed. That's what Paul's saying. Don't be ignorant. Don't be misled. Stop sinning. Man, I tell you, Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 Romans chapter 8, Paul said this, If I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing, I consider 
that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. One day when we get to heaven, he says, you know what? The stuff we're dealing with now, it's not even in comparison to the day we get to heaven to be the glory that will be revealed in us when we get to Jesus. Let me give you another one. Write this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul's talking about this life and his ministry, and he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our light and momentary troubles. Folks, sometimes the things that we whine and complain about as if we were in a coliseum fighting wild animals. And yet Paul says, our light and momentary troubles. I'm not trying to play down anybody's difficulties and say that, that there's not people who are experiencing really hard stuff. Absolutely, we know that. But Paul says this, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And look at this, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 4. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Wow. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it in a similar way, except he says we fix our eyes on Jesus. Folks, we've got a, an amazing eternity waiting for us, huh? If you know Jesus Christ, when life on this earth is over, wow, we're going to heaven. Huh? And all the rest of this stuff is not even going to compare. But how does that hope show in the way we live now? Are we giving it all for God? Are we living our lives for him? To earn his praise so that when he does come, Jesus, I've been waiting for you. I hope. Because that's what Paul says. An understanding of the resurrection of Christ from the dead means that we will one day rise from the dead. If we die on this earth before he comes again, one day we will have eternal life forever with Jesus in heaven. Hallelujah. Let's pray. God, what great truth. Thank you. Thank you. For Jesus. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. And thank you that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, his work on the cross, his shed blood, that he died for our sins, that we've been forgiven, that we've been made a child of God, your child, no longer an enemy, forgiven, no fear of hell, but full of hope. God, we're grateful for that. Oh, God, help us to live our lives on this earth so that people see that hope in Jesus. And I pray that if there are any here today who do not know Jesus, who have no hope, oh, God, 
Help them to see that Jesus died in their place for their sin, to forgive them and give them a right standing before you. Help us who know you, Father, to proclaim that truth everywhere we go, every day of our lives. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.